This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I was as amazed as everybody else by this FBI tweet that just came out. Family members and peers are often best positioned to witness signs of mobilization to violence. Help prevent homegrown violent extremism. Visit this particular website for the FBI to learn how to spot suspicious behaviors and report them to the FBI. Well, this wouldn't be so bad if we were talking about radical Islam or people who truly are violent. Antifa might come to mind. But when we look at what the Biden administration is emphasizing these days, that the supreme threat to the United States comes from white nationalists, which we all know is a lie, this is awfully creepy, maybe even beyond creepy. It's a bit terrifying because there are millions of Americans who no longer trust the FBI after what has gone down in the last several years and what has been going on related to the January 6th Trump supporters, which, by the way, is a huge story. I, I want to play a little bit of what the president, former President Trump, had to say. Um, this is really important because the president having that rally on January 6th, as you know, went through a second impeachment trial uh, trying to say that he was inciting an insurrection, which was ridiculous, and he was not removed from office. How could he be? He was already gone, and it was insane to even have such a an impeachment trial in the first place, other than to continually whack-a-mole on Trump, which is what Democrats did from the get-go. But President Trump joined Maria Bartiromo over on Fox Business talking about answers that are needed related to who shot Ashley Babbitt, that unarmed woman who is in the Capitol, and also to call upon the the powers that be, as it were, to release the footage from January 6th, because we still don't have a lot of the footage. And one wonders, hmm, what's going on? And you put this together with some of the questions that have been raised about why certain people who have been named anonymously in some of these documents released by the government have not been charged. Are they part of the FBI? Were they embedded with some of these Trump supporters? Were they actually maybe encouraging people to go ahead and do things they shouldn't have been doing. There are a lot of things we still don't know. And and this is one of the questions that Maria Bartiromo posed to former President Trump. What did the FBI know? What did Pelosi and Schumer know? Uh, here they are talking about armed insurrection, and yet no arms were seized. This is what President Trump said. Cut three. Right. There were no guns whatsoever. And yet Antifa, which went into Portland and went into so many other places, Seattle, They took over a big part of Seattle. People died, and there were plenty of guns there, by the way. And in Minnesota and Minneapolis, they got, there was no repercussions for them. And yet they have people still in jail. There were no guns. There were no guns. And by the way, while you're at it, who shot Ashley Babbitt? Why are they keeping that secret? Who was the person that shot an, an innocent, wonderful Incredible woman, a military woman, right in the head, and there's no repercussions. If that were on the other side, it would be the biggest story in this country. Who shot Ashley Babbitt? 
People want to know. And why? Well, of course, we all want to know. And it seems a little strange. Now, on the one hand, I will say this. Journalistic standards uh, really do address these sorts of things. If nobody is charged then newspapers and media are not supposed to report the name of the person. Remember Richard Jewell and the Atlanta bombings, and he was named, and lots of people lost a lot of money over that, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, by naming Richard Jewell because it turned out he was exonerated. He was not at all involved in the Atlanta bombings. So we remember that. I will give a little bit of a caveat there to say it is not appropriate to name somebody who shot somebody who was not arrested and convicted. Uh, arrested, at least, is the, is the bare minimum, much less convicted. But on the other hand, people are saying, why wasn't this person arrested? I mean, that's the bigger issue with this particular thing. We know she was shot and killed. Who did it and why was this person not arrested? We've been given a lot of gobbledygook, but we don't have any hard answers on that. Now, Maria Bartiromo also mentioned that Ashley Babbitt was fatally shot trying to crawl through a window. Her family wants answers. And there is speculation that the person who shot her, and you hesitate to even speculate, but this is what she said. The speculation is that this was someone who was in the security detail of a leading Democratic member of Congress. So she flat out asks President Trump, what do you know about this? Cut four. So I've heard that. I will tell you they know who shot Ashley Babbitt. They're protecting that person. I've heard also that it was the head of security for a certain high official, a Democrat. And we'll see, because it's going to come out. It's going to come out. What happened to Ashley Babbitt and what's happening currently to people that are incarcerated. And, you know, it would be one thing if you did that. But why isn't BLM, the death and the destruction that they've caused in Manhattan, in New York, in Chicago, If you take a look at the kind in L.A. and look at Minnesota, look what they did in Seattle. They're not paying a price. In New York, they released 400 people who practically burned down Fifth Avenue and burned down our stores and killed people. And they're all released. They were released. Don't worry about it. You just leave. It was just announced. And yet you have people with no guns that walk down. And frankly, the doors were open and the police in many cases, you know, they have They have hundreds of hours of tape, and they're not releasing the tape. They ought to release the tape to see what really happened. But there was also a love fest between the police, the Capitol Police, and the people that walked down to the Capitol. So I think it's going to all come out. But you have to find out, and you can do it perhaps better than most. And I think I know the answer. Well, this is extremely significant. I mean, I know we're all used to Donald Trump at this point and what a uh, an involved person he is when it comes to giving media interviews and doing all of his celebrity stuff before he was ever elected president. But I was thinking when I was listening to that cut, imagine if this were Ronald Reagan coming on the air <laughs> after he's out of office and saying, "I there's stuff going on and it, we're, we're in really, really wild times, but I, I agree completely that we need to know exactly what's going on here so we can assure ourselves that there's no kind of gigantic cover-up because these people certainly are capable of it. Not saying they did it, just saying we need to know answers. I'm sure CNN will get right on it. Uh, meanwhile, Fox has reached out to Chuck Schumer's office asking about Babbitt's killer. They haven't heard word back, according to Maria Bartiromo. She asks for President Trump's thoughts. Here's what he said. Cut five. I wonder why. You know, they they talk big and they're uh, 
real law and order people when it comes to a certain group. But with another group, they can do whatever they want. Hey, I was in Washington and I saw what happened. And the repercussions to these people was like the people that did damage in these various Democrat run, in all cases, Democrat run cities, there was no repercussion whatsoever. There was nothing. Nothing happened to them. And yet they have people who walk with no guns, with no nothing. They're currently incarcerated. And there's large numbers of them. And it's not right. And they're military people and they're police officers and they're construction workers. And they're tremendous, in many cases, tremendous people. Tremendous people. Now, we have to find out, why is there a double standard? Why is Antifa vicious killers? Why is Antifa and BLM, which is a scam of the system, why are they set free all the time, never even arrested, never even arrested. Mm. Why is it? It's a good question. Here's what's really interesting. Here we have all the uprising going on in Cuba, where Cubans are taking to the streets and rising up against their dictatorial government. They've had enough. These people have been oppressed for decades. And it's ironic, isn't it, that the State Department The State Department is putting out there that the peaceful protests are growing in Cuba as the Cuban people exercise their right to peaceful assembly to express concern about rising COVID cases and deaths and medicine shortages. Okay, State Department, you really think that's what's going on here? Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, had some things to say about that. Uh, And I think it's very ironic what's going on in Cuba in light of what our own government is doing to these January 6th Trump supporters. We're going to get into more on that when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I just want to salute Julie Kelly over at American Greatness. She has done some fantastic work. We've talked to her before on the show, but she has done some fantastic work of late, keeping everybody informed on really the horrors that are being perpetrated in many ways against these January 6th Trump supporters who have been targeted by the U.S. government in some cases and jailed just for the longest time, as President Trump was saying in those clips I uh, played for you right before the break. Uh, she's been going into some detail. Now, I want to bring you up to speed on one particular angle, one particular person uh, referred to as Lego Man, kind of you know, jokingly. His name is Robert Morse. Now, let me go back to a few days ago, and this is what Julie Kelly reported over at American Greatness. Joe Biden's Justice Department wants the Lego Man kept behind bars indefinitely. Federal agents seized a plastic replica of the Capitol building from the Pennsylvania home of Robert Morse during his arrest on June 11th. Justice Department officials are citing the Lego model as evidence in the criminal case against Morse for his involvement in the January 6th protest. They said during his arrest, law enforcement recovered some clothing and other items that appear to match those he carried with him on the 6th, including a don't tread on me flag, a neck gaiter, a military utility bag, a black tourniquet and military fatigues. Law enforcement also recovered a fully constructed U.S. Capitol Lego set. Turns out they walked that back. I'll get to that in a second. So wrote government prosecutors in a July 2nd filing asking the D.C. District Court to deny Morse's release while he awaits trial on nine counts, including assaulting police officers and disorderly conduct. While dangerous criminals daily threaten the safety of innocent people in cities across the country and many are released on bail and that money, you will recall, Kamala Harris was all for that. Oh, we need to raise money to bail these wonderful protesters against racial justice out of jail. Yeah, you can thank Kamala Harris and her cohorts for that. The vice president of the United States. So while this went on, the FBI continued its nationwide manhunt for Capitol protesters, while the Justice Department repeatedly petitions the court to keep the accused incarcerated for months on end. Months on end, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who despicably compares January 6th to the Oklahoma City bombing, recently bragged his office reached a benchmark of 500 arrests. Who knew criminal investigations had quotas? In more than 100 cases and counting, Garland's prosecutors have sought and often received pretrial detention for first-time offenders, including defendants not accused of committing any violent crimes. This is America. The government's justification for keeping capital defendants in jail until either a plea agreement or trial is that the events of January 6th were uniquely horrific. Oh, yeah, right. And anyone who participated poses a threat to the country. Yeah, right. Morse's dangerousness, said U- uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Melissa Jackson, is not limited to his past actions, but presents a future threat. Okay, so now we're back to the FBI saying, rat out your family and friends if they seem like they're going to be extremists. Well, that kind of leaves a broad designation hanging, doesn't it? Who fits under the category of extremists? According to the FBI, 
It's patriotic Americans like Trump supporters who showed up on January 6th, most of whom did nothing. And a lot of whom were incarcerated and presumably didn't do much at all. So what's going on here? It's called demonizing, marginalizing your enemies, your political enemies, so you can achieve what you want to achieve long term. Enemies of the people, you decide. Anyway, going back to this statement by Jackson, who went on to say it is difficult to fathom a more serious danger to the community than the one posed by someone who knowingly and eagerly engaged in a violent insurrection to occupy the U.S. Capitol and abort the certification of a lawful and fair election. And Julie Kelly says, really, it's difficult to think of a worse threat than unarmed and often nonviolent Americans who participated in what they believe to be a legitimate protest against a clearly rigged presidential election. Maybe Jackson can explain her logic to the heartbroken mother of Max Lewis, a 20-year-old University of Chicago student who was shot and paralyzed while riding a CTA train on July 1st and who had to instruct his parents by blinking at them to take him off life support or to the other family members of victims killed in America's surging crime wave. But what Jackson and her fellow prosecutors want more than justice is revenge to punish Americans who repudiate the election of Joe Biden. It's unimaginable to think any other president or attorney general could get away with such a politically flagrant use of the most destructive government legal powers. But here we are. Dozens of defendants have languished in a D.C. jail for months without any relief in sight. And the D.C. Court of Appeals has just refused to overturn the pre-child detention order for Timothy Hale Cusinelli, who was arrested on January 15th and has remained behind bars ever since. I'm sorry, did I miss the gunfire? Oh, it was gunfire against Ashley Babbitt. But the gunfire from the Trump supporters? Look, I'm not saying they should have breached the Capitol. They shouldn't have done that. Absolutely not. But violent insurrection? Well, no wonder they're not releasing the footage. If they had footage of a violent insurrection, release it. Let's see it. Let's see all the people taking up arms against the U.S. government in a violent insurrection. Where's all that footage? Eh, Nowhere. I mean, so far, nowhere. I haven't seen anything. A New Jersey judge initially ordered this man, Timothy Hale Cusinelli, released on conditions, but the government quickly moved to keep him incarcerated, and a federal judge agreed. He was working as a security contractor at a naval station in New Jersey when he traveled to Washington to participate in the Trump rally, and then he was spied on by a friend wearing a wire and investigated by naval intelligence for his role in the protest. Interesting. He's not charged with any violent crime. He didn't assault officers or bring a weapon or vandalize federal property. But prosecutors insisted Hale is a threat to society. Interesting. I mean, this is what's going on in the United States of America. I know I keep saying that, but it's a little bit hard to take. When I'm, when I'm looking at the pictures of the Cubans in the streets or the Iranians in the streets or the Hong Kong protesters in the streets, and what are they using as their symbol of freedom? The American flag. And meanwhile, here we all are in the United States of America watching our government act like a bunch of thugs akin to those governments in many respects. So is it really a surprise to find out now that the DOJ has retracted this claim against the Lego man? This is via Breitbart. The Department of Justice has withdrawn its claim that a Capitol riot suspect was found to be in possession of a fully constructed Lego set depicting the U.S. Capitol. It was still in the box. Oops. They just filed court documents on July 2nd, pushing for him to be detained until trial. And they said during his arrest, he had all this stuff. He had these guns, blah, blah, blah. The Capitol set, et cetera, et cetera. Now they've put out this new filing. 
In the original detention memoranda, the undersigned stated that law enforcement found a fully constructed U.S. Capitol Lego set. Please note that after a review of the photographs from the search, there appears to have been a miscommunication. And that statement appears to be inaccurate. The Lego set was in a box and not fully constructed at the time of the search. The DOJ is seeking to ensure that Morse remains in custody pending trial. Your government. Let's talk a little bit about Cuba, because I think Senator Marco Rubio had some good things to say. I think it's just amazing that so much time passed and the Biden administration stayed silent. Here's what Rubio had to say. This is cut one. It's now almost 10 p.m. Eastern time. It's now been over over 12 hours since over 32 cities in Cuba. Brave people have taken to the streets to protest against a communist Marxist evil tyranny. And so far, not a word. Not a word, not a statement from Joe Biden, from the vice president, from the White House. Not a word. What is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Why are they so uncomfortable coming forward and just condemning this evil socialist Marxist regime? It's been 62 years while these, while these people have been out there suffering. And what is it so hard about coming forward and saying, we're not going to tolerate brutality. We're not going to tolerate bloodshed. Do not step forward, Cuban military, and attack and hurt your own people. If you do it, you're going to be held accountable. We're going to raise this issue at the United Nations Security Council. We're going to talk to the Europeans and any other country that's been giving the Cuban regime cover so they can see the true nature of it. And we're going to pull the, put the full uh, force of the United States government behind these efforts for freedom. And we stand with the Cuban people. Why can't Joe Biden just say that? Why can't the White House just say that? I hope they will. Maybe they're doing it right now as I speak. I hope they do because I don't understand why they're so uncomfortable doing it. Well, we all understand why they're so uncomfortable doing it because they like communism. They like fascism. They like strong arms. They like that kind of stuff. That's what they're doing. They're not doing the same thing as the Cuban government thus far, but they're of the same mindset. They're totalitarians. That's why they don't want to talk about it. That's why they take as long as they do to make simple statements that any other red-blooded American would make. Then he goes back to the State Department tweet saying, oh, this is all about COVID. Really? This is cut too. And then I see this tweet here from the State Department. And, and this, this assistant secretary, who I actually think is, does a good job, and I've been very impressed by some of the things she's done in the past. And she makes it sound like what's happening in Cuba is about people who are upset about COVID, and so they're protesting. This is not just about COVID. Yeah, of course COVID is the icing on the cake here, because you've got a socialist regime that says to people, you have no freedom, you have no uh, independence, you have no ability to speak freely, but you have a really good health care system. They don't. People are dying at their home in their homes. Their health care system is not this great system. Of course, COVID has a, pl- a role to play, but this began well before COVID. These people are frustrated. They want to live in a normal country. They don't want to have their kids getting on rafts and having to leave the country in order to lead normal lives. So why can't the State Department, why can't the White House just say it clearly? This is not about COVID. This is not about anything else. This is about freedom. Say it. You know what I kind of wish? I kind of wish some of these Republican congressmen and senators who are speaking out against the Biden administration for this kind of stuff would just come out and say it themselves. They're acting very diplomatic. Why doesn't Biden say anything? How come we're not going in there and telling the Cuban government, let these people go and lift lift the burden on them and such? And why? We don't understand. Why aren't the Democrats doing anything? That's not working as a strategy. You need to call them out. We all need to call them out. By the way, before we go to break, I just want to remind you that our wonderful campaign with Bible League International is ongoing. We are trying to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa where the need for Bibles is so great. In some places, nine out of 10 Christians 
don't have a Bible. Can you help? $5 is all it takes to send one Bible to Africa. Here's the number to call, 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. It is a wonderful thing when a sinner turns from his lost condition and finds salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest stories of our era is how many people from Muslim backgrounds are coming to know the Lord around the world. My next guest knows all about it. Joining me now is Dr. Samuel Naiman, who is Vice President of Call of Hope USA and Professor of Intercultural Studies at Moody Bible Institute. But he was also born and raised in Pakistan in a Muslim convert's home. And he's joining us to share some of the incredible stories about Muslims and Embracing the Gospel, as co-author of the book we'll be discussing called God of the Impossible, Stories of Hope from the Muslim World. And Dr. Naiman, wonderful to have you here. How are you doing? It's a great privilege to be with you, Janet. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I was very intrigued. You're a second-generation believer. Your father yes. used to be an extremist Muslim. How yes. did he come to know the Lord? What happened um, in your family? Yeah, sure, Janet. I mean, I normally start by giving a little bit about my family or dad's background, is that um, if uh, ISIS, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Hamas would have been there, uh, you know, when my father was born, uh, he would have been a very proud member of one of these organizations. So Mm -hmm. that kind of gives you the background of his upbringing. I grew up in a very conservative Muslim home in a city called Jammu, which is part of India now, Indian Kashmir. Um, you know, so grew up, uh, my dad, my grandfather was a veteran from the First World War, and my father uh, joined the Royal Air Force in the Second World War, and his first encounter with Christ was, now before we go there, please remember that uh, growing up in a conservative Muslim home, he had memorized the Quran, hmm. uh, Till I think when he was nine or ten, and you know, regular uh, mosque attendance and everything. My my grandfather was a very strong supporter of the local uh, mosque in his city, so it was natural for him, you know, to follow his father's footsteps. So he joined the Royal Air Force in the Second World War and post was posted in the northeastern part of India at that time uh, in the uh, northeastern Straits. His first encounter was through a British Army chaplain, and um, Japanese were were able to come that far to bomb. And uh, whenever the planes used to come, the chaplain used to say, boys, let's go to the chapel and pray. And his prayer was very simple, summarizing, Lord Jesus, these young men do not know you. If it is your will, uh, give them one more opportunity Mm -hmm. to live. So Mm -hmm. then, you know, he said, well, do you want to live and agree? Yes, of course. I mean, amen. We'll do that. And that kind of uh, started his, his thinking. I mean, who's Jesus with due respect? He was, <laughs> he was a Caucasian British, so they used to call him, who's Jesus of this white man? You know, <laughs> I mean, that Jesus of white man has power. Yeah. Second encounter was uh, he was badly wounded, almost died, and was brought to a nearest medical unit. 
and two Christian nurses went out of the way to take care of him above and beyond their duty. And through these uh, nurses, he saw the compassion aspect of uh, a Christian. Third encounter, India Pakistan were being divided back in 1947. Uh, World War ended, went back, my dad went back home, and then it was very normal for him to join the uh, Islamic resistance of Mujahideen. And, um, you know, their job was basically to create terror and havoc and kill people, Hindus. Hmm. And um, I mean, people can Google India-Pakistan division and all those things. We don't have time to go there. But in this time, he came across a small house where he saw two men. And he said, well, are you Christian? Yes. Uh, he said, well, you need to become Muslims. If not, we are going to kill you. So as he was having this conversation, a small girl came out and, and uh, she said, you know, you can do anything that you want to do with us, but uh, please give us time to pray. And I believe my Jesus will save me. And my father just had kind of compassion and mercy on this young child. And and he said that you are just a small kid, but if this is your last prayer, please go ahead and pray. But after you finish your prayer, we will uh, kill your father and uncle and we will uh, take you away and give it to the Indians and get two of our Muslim girls back. Mm. So they prayed, and he couldn't see what was happening. I mean, uh, what, he couldn't hear what was happening. But after, as soon as they finished prayer, uh, he saw a very bright light appearing from this small place in the small room. And he thought that he'll get blind, and he got so scared, and he started backing off. And uh, he asked for forgiveness, and they forgave him. And, uh, you know, he, he returned. He didn't touch them. He couldn't <laughs> touch them, actually. He was very scared. Wow. After that, you know, multiple things happen. Long story short, I mean, my grace is sufficient for him. Anyone can Google it and, you know, they can find my dad's testimony. But many things, other things happen and he got very disillusioned by Islam. And um, one day he just said, you know, I cannot, I cannot keep on killing people in jihad. And um, if, if you are the truth, he said, I want, to, I want to follow the truth. Cannot go to the temple, Hindu temple and worship God. But then he remembered Jesus of Baxter, Jesus of these two nurses, and Jesus of this small girl. And he said, you know, if you are the truth, then speak to me, because I, I will, I, I'm tired. And he heard a very simple but audible voice, my grace is sufficient for you, in English, in Urdu. Uh, it was, Mera fazal tere liye kafi hai. And he started reciting it. The more he recited, the more calmer his spirit became. And... Uh, one day he was doing it on a railway platform. A janitor was uh, mopping the floor. And uh, he said, well, young man, are you a Muslim? He said, no, a Christian, sorry. He said, oh, young man, are you a Christian? Oh, no, God forbid, I'm a Muslim. So he told him the whole story. And then uh, he said, well, you better go and talk to my, father, my pastor because I'm an illiterate person. I don't know. I cannot help you anymore. So he came and met this pastor two stations down and uh, gave his life to Christ. <laughs> One important thing is that uh, on his baptism, there were two American missionaries. Um, this is back in, you know, early 50s. And they said he was the first person uh, who had come to Christ in that area after 17 years of ministry. A so, lot more, but I think <laughs> this will be a good summary. Oh, my goodness. That is so encouraging. So when you are hearing the stories of Muslims coming to Christ, you have that personal background that makes it probably that much more profound and amazing yes, because Janet, you know what it's like to live there. Yes, Janet. And I think one thing that, you know, fast forward, I mean, one of the other things that happened in our family in Pakistan, of course, 
was my younger brother was uh, martyred by by the Muslim extremists. Mm, um, you know, um, because we were very active in our ministry in Pakistan. So, yes, of course, uh, I am not surprised. I think if these are divine encounters. The Lord reaches them uh, in our, in marvelous ways, surprising ways, maybe sometimes very simplistic ways. Um, and I think that is kind of a little bit surprising for our Western audience, well, because we are used to strong, maybe intellectual uh, analysis or critique and debates and all those things. But uh, I'm always reminded that childlike faith uh, mm-hmm. is, is basically a very basic foundation or, or a condition for a, for a person to come to Christ. Amen. So when you are looking across the world, and I know that you look at different areas of the world in the book, yeah. I want to get into some of those stories, but where do you see the Lord most at work now in these Muslim countries? Can you tell us where the Lord is really working significantly? I would say, Janet, mostly in the Middle East, all people of Middle Eastern origin. I think the recent five, five years history of uh, the, the refugee crisis that has happened, sad in, in Syria and all those things, and people have migrated to Europe. Um, people are coming to this country, and and we see a tremendous growth. Prior to that, before that, uh, I will say uh, most of the people who are coming to Christ are from uh, from Iran or from Persian background, okay. because again, there they have seen uh, the reality of Islam. You know, when since Khomeini came back in 1979, and a lot of people who have come to Christ, they say, "Well, if this is what Islam is, I don't." want to be in that situation. Right. So we tremendous growth among Iranians, and recently, more recently, about 10 years, uh, Middle Eastern, but then Africans, South Asians, and everywhere. Yeah, it's it's great. I read a quote recently from somebody in Iran who was saying, Iran is not a Muslim nation anymore. And I thought, I wonder how many Westerners would hear that comment yeah. and, and yeah. be startled. Yeah, I think, I think that, you know, one has to be very cautious because no one knows. I mean, I think the numbers... Are, are, are everywhere there's a broad spectrum, but I will say it's it's true that the number of Iranians who have come to Christ, I will say in the last 40 years, uh, is far more than even than in the last 1400 years. Unbelievable. So, yes, God is working amazingly among Iranians. That is so encouraging. Well, we're going to get into more of these stories of hope from the Muslim world. God of the Impossible is the book. Dr. Samuel Naiman with us, and we'll come back right after this. This is Janet Mafford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa, in many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique. As many as nine out of 10 Christians are denied God's word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me, and now it will means so much to these Bibleist Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor John in Mozambique. One occasion, I found a pastor that was leading a church of 90 church members. And he was having one Bible that was starting from Exodus and ends to the Ephesians. And he was leading the church with that Bible. So, When we went to give them the Bible, 
imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, $500 sends 100, and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Actually, the, the need is great. If you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the Bible that Pastor, I understand you work with Bible, but we don't have Bibles here. So that, that, that lady had a Bible from Exodus to the book of Hebrews. That's all. You see that? So there is a great need of Bibles. Send God's word to a Bibleless believer in Africa today for only $5. Call 800-YESWORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. It is great to have you here and great to have with us Dr. Samuel Naiman. He is professor of intercultural studies at Moody Bible Institute and vice president of Call of Hope USA. The book he's co-edited here, authored, is God of the Impossible. And we're talking about what the Lord is doing around the Muslim world, bringing people to Jesus Christ, which is so exciting because we're, you know, so much I'm thinking about this, Dr. Naiman. Here in the United States, we're seeing such a decline and a rise of hostility against Christianity. I think a lot of these stories get us hope that oh great lord at least you're at work bringing more people to yourself in other parts of the world yeah. we can rejoice about that yeah and you know janet i mean god is doing something totally i agree with you i think the hostilities are more felt now uh, but but i will just say that you know when you when you read the testimonies of 10 believers here in this book for for us who are coming from non-western perspective from non-western world as believers hostilities and opposition and persecution uh, is is uh, what we say is a great reward of, of following Christ. I mean, pain and persecution has part has been part of Christians' journey for centuries. Right, I mean, the first century Christians, and even over the years, I think lately we we see the pushback uh, from the society and all those things. So that is a little bit different because we have claimed or we feel that oh, this is a free country and we can practice our faith. But lately, totally, you're right that we we see opposition in many different ways. That is not a surprise for me. I believe that the more the Lord works, uh, the more the enemy also will, will work and uh, will we'll have pushback, no yeah. doubt. Yeah, and, and it's encouraging to see the fruit that's being born with the preaching of the gospel in other areas yeah. of the world. So let's talk about some of these stories. One was about this man named Brother Abdul in Nigeria, yes. and I, I love that story. He was a Dear fake, brother, yeah, yes, fake yes, believer. Who be, not a problem. Dear, he, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Tell go us ahead. about him. Yep. Go ahead. Dear Brother Janet, I have known him for years and years and years. I've met with him, worked with him, traveled with him up in northern Nigeria. Uh, you know, his, his story is very, very kind of unique, not typical, you know, that uh, born and raised in a, in a very Muslim home, uh, studied the Quran, uh, you know, was uh, was uh, studied the Quran in, in the mosque. And later on, he was very smart in what he did. So the Muslims, uh, Nigerians, actually, they sent him. Uh, to spy, to be a spy for them. And he did go to the local church, uh, quote-unquote accepted, or became, quote-unquote, Christian. And then for years, uh, he worked underground. I mean, he used to observe what the Christians are doing, what the activities are, and report back um, to uh, the Muslim organizations that, that were supporting him. But then one day he was invited, um, and again, he was a very charismatic speaker. Uh, one day he was invited uh, in a big youth rally, you know, he said, okay, well, I'm going to be the main speaker. And, and the people said, no, actually, 
this this time, how about you wait? Or, you know, there's another person scheduled. And there was an older pastor uh, who was there. And um, I mean, then he's then Abdul said, you know, yeah, sure. He will fail and they'll, you know, he'll make fool of himself and then I will go and speak. <laughs> but in, in that message, he, uh, the pastor spoke very clearly that choose for yourself whom you are going to follow, either, either Christ or Baal in the Old Testament. And he felt that he is speaking directly to him. Again, you know, he was very well respected and all those things. And um, the pastor, you know, was just preaching. There were about a thousand young people there. And he said, well, today is the time that you have to decide and you stand. And he was so convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he thought probably there would be many others like him. But when he stood, he looked around. He was the only one. And he, the pastor called him in front and he confessed his sin. He said, you know, I've been a fake believer, uh, a faker for so many years, uh, you know, he was sorry for what the cause, uh, you know, uh, the cause of many opposition or persecution that he has been part of. And he said, you know, I cannot live uh, like that anymore. So he gave his life to Christ, I will say, uh, in that day, became real bargain believer, and then um, started uh, preaching the gospel. When So real Persecution started when he became a born-again believer, not before that. And then uh, he was sent, of course, they almost killed him, and then he was sent to a local pastor in another part of Nigeria. And um, so he, he, you know, was a kind of uh, apprentice or, you know, a trainee. And there, uh, long story short, um, his, uh, he got married with the pastor's daughter. That another is a very strange story. But both he, his, his wife and uh, him, Brother Abdul, they started working in the northern part of Nigeria. Again, very tough area. Please remember, these are eight Sharia states where the Sharia law and, of course, the Boko Haram and the abduction of Christian girls. I'm sure your, your listeners uh, have heard about it multiple yes. times. Yes. And uh, there, you know, years he served. Um, uh, he is overseeing even now. Over 40, what we call uh, in Call of Hope, farmer evangelists. These are pastors who basically deliberately go to Muslim villages and start farming. And then, of course, through farming and agriculture, they share the gospel. So he, he gave refuge or shelter to a Muslim young man who had come to Christ. You know, as a pastor, he'd give shelter. <laughs> and then the local Muslim organization said, you better, you better give that guy back to us. And, and he said, well, if he, if he leaves my house, you're going to kill him. And they said, yes. He, that's his punishment. And they warn him, if he does not re- return this guy, um, they will harm his son, who was studying in a big place. So he did not give in to the pressure. And um, then um, these uh, extremists, they carried on the threat. And, uh, you know, they, they basically slaughtered his son, oh. uh, who was mm-hmm. in the university. And, and people who witnessed that, they said they, had, they, he slaughtered, they slaughtered him as a goat. So he brought his body back, and um, again, uh, he preached on forgiveness. And that was a shock for this uh, Muslim state up in uh, Kano. And, um, and, um, you know, I mean, he could have left. He could have gone to Europe. He could have come to America. But uh, he said, no, God has called us here. And uh, one beautiful comment that we always hear from him and others, he said, you know, when people keep, he, and he always reminds us that tell people in Europe and America, keep praying for us. And of course, we say, of course, we pray for you. But then the next part that he says is very surprising. He said, well, 
Before you start praying, just let us know because we'll start work. Because <laughs> without prayers, we cannot function. I literally, yeah. literally. Yeah. He said, you know, if you start praying, just let us know because we are not going to work. We cannot, fun- we cannot work here without your prayers. And, you know, our, our brother Stefano, who is the co-author of this book, I mean, he visited him. I have been in this house. And uh, he said, you know, Stefano, we have four more kids. And he said, even if they take every child away, the martyrdom of every child will bring us one step closer to God. And, you know, you listen to that, you mm-hmm. look at him, and then you say, where in the world has he got this, uh, you know, courage and just persistence and patience? Mm-hmm. And his house was burned, and, you know, he's been harassed many times, but he's not going to move from that area. And, uh, and that, to me, is a beautiful example of what the Lord uh, does uh, when he comes in the heart of a person. Oh, my goodness. that That is amazing. I mean, to be willing to follow the Lord yeah. that closely, regardless yeah. of the cost. I mean, it's something that you hear about. But when you hear about someone who did that, what what, what that man did, Brother Abdul, that's that's that could only be of the Lord. I mean, that, that that's yeah. the kind of strength and faith that only comes directly from the Lord. What would you say, Dr. Naaman, when, when you're telling people about what it's like to be a Christian in the Muslim world, what is the hardest part about it, or what do they most often pray? Ask us to pray I think, for. Them. I think, yeah, I will. I will invite your listeners, Janet, to be fervent in prayer. A prayer is is the great gift that we can give to the persecuted church. And people say, well, actually, you know, I'm just going to pray. It's not. I'm just going to pray. Pray with persistence and diligence. You know, carve out maybe five, ten minutes. Pick up one country, adopt uh, one missionary, or how whatever. But prayer is helpful. Secondly, be sensitive. You know, share what the Lord is doing in the Muslim world. Talk about their pain and persecution. Invite others to become your prayer partner. Again, there are multiple ways that we can keep up uh, with them. Secondly, you know, I will invite people to consider supporting a national missionary uh, because these people are, uh, Call of Hope works in about, you know, 40 plus countries and with 200 national evangelists, uh, most of them, our, our nationals, and we do not send Western uh, friends, you know. Um, and most of them are from a former, uh, from a, uh, Islamic background. They are former Muslims, and it is it is just a great privilege to come alongside them, to enable them, to encourage them, to empower them, to be be a frontline worker. And you know, you can go to our website and get stories from there. But but for me, you know, my father uh, served with Call of Hope in Pakistan for years. And I have firsthand seen the ministry uh, that uh, Call of Hope has. Over 100 years of faithful ministry in the, in the Muslim world, supporting and, and working through the nationals. I mean, that to me is just amazing. It is and amazing. Time out of time, you know, you get testimonies and, and you're just amazed. And you see baptism or you baptize people in, in, in a marvelous space. It so, is wonderful. I just love it, and it's so encouraging. The name of the book, again, God of the Impossible, Dr. Samuel Naaman with us. And God bless you, Dr. Naaman. We will be praying for those believers, and thank you for your ministry. Thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thank you for listening to Janet Meffer today. We appreciate you tuning in every day. Hope you'll do so next time. We'll see you then. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.